Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from Psalm 24, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. They will receive blessings from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a joy and honor it is to be with you today and to be part of this celebration of worship. To come together in a town like Washington, D.C. and be part of a community of faith that for decades and decades has sought Jesus Christ and the honoring of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this place is no small thing. It may be familiar to us. It may be what we consider normal, but it is a gift and a remarkable gift, that in the midst of a context in which swirling power is the feast of every day, we have a chance to come to the one who alone is Lord. Shall we pray? Oh God, how grateful we are that our worship is meant to be a reflection of the reality of who you are. What we say, what we do, how we sing, how we pray. And beyond this liturgical form of worship, how we live our worship, oh God, may it be by your grace that you lead us today in what it means to be people who worship in the temple and who live our worship in the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to take a few moments to examine two different texts. First it will be Psalm 24, and then it will be a text from Isaiah chapter 58. In Psalm 24, the psalmist is giving us a portrait of a moment in Israel's life that is almost surely a procession to the Temple Mount, where at the top of this mount is the temple itself, the place that is considered to be the most sacred place, the place where God dwells where, in fact, in that context, 
so holy is it considered that priests of a certain kind only are allowed into the innermost sanctum because the holiness of the God who is this God that we worship, this God of glory, a God of holiness and purity and majesty, a God whose power redefines and holds any other kind of power, whose greatness and glory, whose purity and righteousness, whose graciousness and truth is meant to create a context in which all other expressions of life, of human flourishing, of the flourishing of the whole created order, take their context in light of the glory of God. And in this liturgical moment, Israel, through the mouth of David perhaps, or the psalmist, is simply saying, we are the ones who are coming toward the temple in this moment to honor the glory of God. The earth, the whole earth, is the Lord's and all that is in it, the Lord and all those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. This is where the reality of God's glory intersects then with human life. In the very next verses, then, the question naturally begins to ask, but who could dare do such a thing? Who could ever, ever endeavor to ascend to the temple? Who could ever bring their lives wholly into the presence of God? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts and who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. They will receive the blessing from the Lord. That is a rhetorical response. It's theologically and liturgically correct, but it is far from being easy. Worship is the work of our lives. It is about coming to terms with the reality of God being God and me not being God and you not being God. When I was serving as the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church, we would sometimes, in Berkeley, we would sometimes use a liturgy that we had crafted together that began with me saying, I'm not God. The congregation saying resoundingly and with joy back to me, you're not God. And with me resoundingly and joyfully saying to the congregation, and you're not God. And the congregation saying, we're not God. And as the liturgy went on, it was sort of a matter of posting domain after domain, sphere after sphere of life in which it might be possible to imagine that that might be God, that that kind of paradigm might be the thing that would hold supremacy and ultimacy in our lives. And again and again, the practice of laying it down as something perhaps valued, important, treasured even, but not worthy of worship. There is no real rival to God. And the psalmist in this exalting language simply continues to pick up those major chords throughout the whole Bible, but certainly captured again and again in the Psalter and elsewhere. It's this honoring of God. We live in a world where increasingly there are fewer and fewer people in the United States in particular who are claiming that there is any belief at all in God. The statistics have fallen. It's not a concern about whether I can be capable of worship. There is no one and nothing to worship. It is an empty universe of eternal meaning. It is a place in which everything is ultimately merely horizontal. 
It is, as many deconstructionists have argued, simply a world of power and language. Utterly flat, no transcendence, no accountability to something beyond myself or even our collective selves, simply the life that we choose to live for whatever reasons and whatever purpose we may set ourselves. The psalmist's vision is entirely different. This is a picture in Israel's life where Israel is confident there is a true and living and just and righteous God who has delivered and redeemed Israel, who has provided them the land, who has delivered them from oppression, who has given them an opportunity of life in the promised land, and a temple, and a king. And Israel, if it's confident of anything, is confident of its worship. So in a certain sense, this set of words almost holds both the glory of what God has given as a gift of worship and the condemnation as well. Because, after all, who is capable of worshiping? The language is so simple, so plain. Those with clean hands and a pure heart. Anyone care to raise their hands that you qualify as a worshiper? Where are your clean hands? Where is your pure heart? The question that is begged by this, a question that God begs as much as anyone else begs, is how do you become worthy to come into my presence? I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm worthy of all glory, of the weight of all reality. I'm the one who alone deserves being entrusted with the full weight of all that is real. And in the context of that, to gain a people who live a life that reflects in all they do, that same reality. Do it in your liturgical temple context and do it in the life in the world. The connection between these two things are part of the challenge of any sort of faithful worshiper or faithful worshiping community. It's an example of the challenge that it is to really take seriously who God is and not seek in a kind of overly heavy, sometimes framed, Calvinistically oppressive form of self-flagellation in which we beat ourselves up as the unworthy, the unholy, and the unclean. But to simply tell in truth, I'm not God. And you're not God. And we're not God. And the United States is not God. And power is not God. And money is not God. And beauty is not God. And health is not God. All of these things that we could so easily become distracted by are not God. And we can say confessionally, absolutely, I'm going to remember that. I'm not God until tomorrow or maybe this afternoon when I feel quite free in my home to exercise an authority that I am not given. I'm not God should be a daily liturgy. It should be a regular liturgy. It's part in part why the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a way of taking the reality of this dynamic of worship, being in the glory of the one who inspires and should inspire this kind of glory and beauty in the architecture and design of the space, 
the materials that are used, the way that it's structured and organized in a way to declare the holiness of God. But in the declaring the holiness of God, we have to ask ourselves, do we belong in that space? And if so, on what grounds? By our giving? By our stature? By our gender? By our race? by our voice, by our personality, what gives us our credentials to come into this holy space which God alone ushers in. In this context, the psalmist is principally putting the weight on who is the king of glory. Who is this one who holds all majesty and power, whose character is utterly righteous, utterly pure, These are the qualities of God in whose presence we are then invited to worship. But we live in a casual world, a casual world with almost no demarcations of anything that's not ordinary. And anyone and anything that does seem to be or make a claim to be more than ordinary, a position, a place, a circumstances, an office, a role, a form of power, we tend to want to bring to our human level. Part of the definition of America has always been populism, and we've probably not seen any era more populously oriented where anyone's voice equals any other voice. I remember this stunning experience of first being introduced to the internet and going for my very first time to the Google website, which was still just beginning to start being used. And I typed something in, and I felt overwhelmed by the fact that I had fallen into this open space called the internet, which I couldn't even begin to understand and where it seemed to me any subject, topic, idea, name I could type in and suddenly, instantaneously would appear something pretty grand and glorious. And it was in that context that it also whipped me back to an understanding of worship that I am every day before the God who really truly holds all things, who is not a search engine. God is not a search engine. God is not a highly powerful search engine. God is not boundaried or captive by AI now. God is not boundaried by politics or circumstances or technology. God is not framed in the myopia of our own humanity. There was a time when I had a terrible bicycle accident and it pushed my left eye back in my skull and down in my skull. It was a terrible accident. took over a year of reconstructive surgery to remake my eyes so that I could see and so that I could see binocularly. I'm so thankful that that has been restored. But there were many, 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 many days when I was lying flat in as silent a room as possible with as little light as possible, simply caught in this reconstructive gap in my life, my experience, my time, my relationships. And God's spirit sometimes I felt was really speaking to me. And one time I felt very deeply God saying to me, you know, Mark, I will restore your sight. We're in the process of reconstructive surgery through the blessings of medicine and technology. Your sight will actually be restored. But what you need, much more than restored sight, is new vision. And new vision has to do with perception. And perception has to do with the heart. And it has to do with how you worship me and see me. It has to do with how you perceive and see your neighbor. It has to do with the way in which the reality of what worship is calling us to is actually in us. So the motion of the psalm is all about 
how do we come into the glory of God? The challenge of accompanying and contrasting text in Isaiah 58 says, but has that glory come all the way in? Have we entered the glory of God to begin to understand what it means to trust a God revealed ultimately in Jesus Christ? And have we allowed the glory of God to be the glory that fills us and transforms the way that we perceive and name and love in the world? Worship is consequential in this double action. It's both about how do I name and see and reframe my life week by week, day by day, hour by hour in the reality of the glory of God in whose presence we perpetually dwell. And then how do I allow that glory, all of that glory, by the power of the Spirit to fill my heart and soul and body with the reality of God's presence that I might see myself and my neighbor in entirely new ways because of the change of the glory indwelling in me. I am to dwell in the glory of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord is to dwell in me. And when that double action doesn't occur in worship, we land in a highly problematic, challenging moment in Israel's life, where the, through the prophet we hear these words. Shout out, do not hold back, Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and they delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They say, why do we fast? But you do not see. The people say, why do we humble ourselves? But you do not notice. Look, look. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as, I, as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down ahead and, like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Israel's practice of worship was all about naming God for their own sake and failing to worship the one who is being named. They're all about the liturgical form, the sacred context, the, the perfect orderliness, but not about the real reality of how such worship gets lived out in ordinary spaces all around us every day in every setting. A beloved member of this church for many years was a man named Bill Brem. Bill was a friend to many here and certainly a friend to me, a person that I loved and admired a great deal, still alive and well in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Once I was out for dinner with Bill and we were at a very fancy restaurant that he had chosen and he carefully described to the waiter that he wanted lamb chops. And 
He said, you know, what I want you to do is probably not the normal practice. I'd like you to bring the lamb chops to me and put the lamb chops on one plate, just the lamb chops. And then I'd like any sauce or other side dishes to be put on a second plate. And he went through this several times quite meticulously, wanting to be sure that in fact the waiter understood so that he could explain to the chef that he really wanted his chops to be, as he said to me, don't you just love pristine lamb chops? I said, gosh, Bill, I, I just don't know that that category even existed in my mind. I, I don't even know that I've thought about such a thing as a pristine lamb chop. A pristine lamb chop, I, I think it probably sounds like a good thing. Of course I do. Of course, you're Bill Bram, and I'm going to say to you, of course, let's have pristine lamb chops as long as we can. But the challenge is the side dishes. And it's not just the side dishes in that case of delicacy and deliciousness. Our worship is not just about what happens in the pristine orchestrated moment of liturgical worship, but what happens in the world as we go from this context, exalting the glory of God, called to live the reality of our worship in a world where there's lots of side dishes and lots of complexity and lots of suffering, and lots of pain, and lots of injustice, lots of blindness and dullness, lots of denial and rejection, lots of tribalism, lots of populism over and against some other populism. And in the context of that moment, we can easily lose our bearings, and we say, well, we worship the God of glory, the one who holds all power and reframes all power for the sake of righteousness and justice, but our hands are not clean. I cannot eat as a pristine worshiper. I cannot serve as a pristine offerer of even myself. We live in a world of complexity, of sin, of struggle, of partial, partialness, and of partiality. We live in a world full of all kinds of distractions, and in the context of that, how do we keep our worship clear? So that in fact the worship that orders what we do here becomes the worship that orders how we see and love one another in the world. Of course, we live at a time of extraordinary hostility in our country and really around the world. A time of totalitarianism and oppression is everywhere. For the threats of, and dangers of the abuse of power is more prominent than not. And while we struggle in all of these ways, the church itself seems as caught up in all of those things as, as anyone else. And where the, the division and the hostility and the rejection and the bitterness and the injustice is actually, it seems, even propagated by the church, let alone distinctively representing an entirely different thing that Jesus will call the kingdom of God that rules with peace and grace and mercy and justice. We profess our faith in pristine worship, but do we live our faith, live our worship, in places of conflict and challenge and ordinariness and boredom and absorption and obsession and binging and blindness? Are we prepared to live a life of worship? The question of the Bible is that. Nothing is more essential than worship. Some have said, of course, that we can't not be worshipers. It's just who and what we will worship. But the Bible would want to press that and say, oh yes, it's about who and what you worship, but it's also about who and what you worship causes you to be and do in the world. 
That's the ark of worship. It doesn't start and end in the temple. It's for the temple's sake that we honor the glory of God, but it's also for the glory of God that we live our worship every day in the way that we love and see and care. And so the, the writer goes on to say, is not this actually the fast that God chooses? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and the healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. Brothers and sisters, the call of Christian faith is to the essentialness of worship that regrounds and reorders everything else in our life. That calls us in freedom to realize that we cannot worship God with pure hands and a clean heart, but instead calls us to acknowledge that only in Jesus Christ is the one who comes on our behalf to make it possible for us to worship, not only in the temple, but also in the context of the communal life that we live every day, the society and culture of which we are all a part, in a context in which our worship is meant to show up by lives of unexpected power? Well, if you mean by power, unexpected forgiveness. The capacity to offer forgiveness. The capacity to live in a capacious generosity that doesn't hold one another hostage to our worst day. To set us free to offer and receive the forgiveness and mercy of God, but also to reorient what we pay attention to, what we read, what we see, what we enact, how we actually respond in the context of the needs and urgencies of the world in which breaking the bonds of injustice is as important now for the body of Christ to engage as it has ever been. In the context of that, to reflect the peculiarity of a God revealed now in Jesus Christ as the one who has purified our worship and purified the worship that we offer in the world, not as those who are made perfect and pristine. I am not a pristine Christian. I am not a pristine president. I'm not a pristine pastor. I'm not a pristine human being. I am Mark Laverton with all of the material that God has created and all of the glory and mess, beauty and joy, suffering and pain that I hold in my little universe of existence. And in the context of that, God is healing me to be a person who in Christ offers my ordinariness in worship to the God of all glory. Throw open the gates and let the King of glory come in, not only to the temple, but all the way into our lives. Let this undulation of worship, an acknowledgement of God being God and fullness of God being in us for the sake of the world. That is the act of worship, the encompassing, comprehensive, transformational act of worship that means that God's people show up as peculiar people. Oh, we know enemies, we know and understand 
suffering, we know how power works. We, we get that it can be abused. We get that it can actually be really fun. We get that we might like some of this or some of that or some of that. Our oldest son's first word was simply the word more. That's where we live. More. I just want more. And in that world of moreness, more for me, more for my family, for, for my kind, more for those who vote like me, look like me, act like me, talk like me. The God of glory shatters all of that small making and invites us to live in the capaciousness, as the psalmist elsewhere will say, the broad place. We're in freedom because God is God, I am not, nor are you. The King of glory has come to reign in us. And to let that show by the humility, by the mercy, by the kindness, the creativity, the justice that we offer to our most offending neighbor, or politician, or party, or church, or denomination, or personality, or boss. In that world, we are free to live our worship with unexpected qualities that reflect the God of glory, who because of worship now dwells in us and longs to demonstrate himself through us in our worship. Lord, in your grace, you call us to worship, and it is a dangerous act. It's dangerous to our self-interest. It's dangerous to a self-curated world. It's dangerous to a self-preoccupation. It's dangerous to people that are just simply like us. But it's for the risk of being people who look like you, who show in ordinary ways the reality of your greatness, your power, your healing, your mercy, your justice in ways that can change us and change the world. Oh Lord, May we worship you. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.